Good morning, everyone. So good to see you all. I bring you greetings from the Pastor Apocalypse. Uh, gratefully, uh, we are all doing quite well. Uh, just to share some quotes here, we had a text stream go out. Uh, uh, just to check in, David's done a great job making sure everyone is in tip-top shape and is uh, doing well. And uh, Shane said, handy dandy here. Uh, and doing great, Janet, uh, also good, looking forward to seeing everyone on Monday, and so am I. Uh, so it'll be good to see the pastors. Uh, our family's doing well, thanks for praying. Uh, we did come down with COVID uh, a handful of weeks ago. It was a mild case uh, for the most part, and uh, Ellie likewise probably got it also, and she had a, a bit of a sneeze. Uh, and so we are uh, glad to be moving forward together and glad to be preaching. It is true. God is in control. You know, he knew that I needed to get COVID early uh, to be here today. So, uh, so glad that we are here in 1 Kings 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can go and turn to 1 Kings 12. Uh, that's where we'll be this morning. And uh, we are here continuing a series that started last week. Uh, that's last week. And uh, I want to just uh, share a few things uh, before we get started into the text. Now, the sermon series is Kingdom in Conflict. Uh, and this assumption here is that there is an inherent kingdom conflict between God the King and His kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. And this conflict happens when the kingdoms of this world are in rebellion against God the King. Now, we see this conflict begin in Israel at the very inception of the kingdom. God the King delivered the people from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. He led them through the wilderness for a number of years. He fed them food. He gave them drink. Uh, he was gracious and good to these people. He showed Himself a glorious, kind, and loving King. And yet the people of God were divided in their devotion. You see, the people of God should have seen His goodness and kindness, God's devotion to His people, and responded with devotion to God, an undivided devotion, a commitment to His kingdom and His glory. You see, what God was doing with this nation was He was raising up this nation that they would then become a light for the nations, that God's salvation would reach to the end of the earth. And though God was their king, the people asked Samuel to appoint a king who would judge them like all the other nations. Now, this displeased Samuel, but the Lord said, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now, to be very clear, God was not against the concept of a king to lead the people of Israel. They would eventually have a king. God gives instructions about what that king ought to do, how he ought to read God's word and remain humble and submit to God the king. But they were not to have a king like the other nations. The rest of the nations have kings and kingdoms that are in rebellion against God and his word. And if Israel was to have a king, he was to be humble. He was to submit to God's word, read it regularly. He was to not lift his head above his people in pride. He is to represent the character of God the king as he serves his king. But this desire to have a king like the nations, this was never God's desire for his people. And was even a foretaste of future conflict among kingdoms. Now, this sermon series focuses on the northern kingdom. We're going to be looking at Elijah and Elisha and their prophetic ministry to the northern kingdom. And so today what I want us to explore is the cause of the division of the kingdom. 
What made the north leave the south? And what happened in between? And what we'll see is that the kingdom divided because the people's hearts were already divided. For God is looking for a king who is undivided in his devotion to him. And exploring the divided hearts of King Rehoboam and King Jeroboam, we'll also confront our own divided hearts and realize our need for the one true king who is undivided in his devotion, the King Jesus. So let's read God's word in 1 Kings chapter 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us. And we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, when he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? They said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, then when you answer them, they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made your yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Naboth. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, our King, that you lead us well that you have loved us so much that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, to rule and reign over us, to forgive us of our great sin and to lead us in righteousness. 
We pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see King Jesus with clear sight. We would see our sin. We'd bring it before the Savior and find not only forgiveness, but direction in life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In a Greek myth, Zeus wanted to teach humanity about the path of freedom and slavery. So he had Prometheus create two roads. When he was to create these roads, he was creating the road to freedom and the road to slavery. Now, this road to freedom was long and winding and extremely steep. He also made sure that this road went deep into the dark forest. And he filled this forest with strange and dangerous beasts, ferocious and terrifying. This road to freedom would be a painful road to cross. But at the end, it would open up to a peaceful countryside. This road of trial and obstacle ends in fullness and freedom. The other road that was made was the road called slavery. And it was made smooth and easy. Prometheus did not make this one so steep and he was, did not make it winding as the previous one. This road had a clear course to the end. It started in the countryside, beautiful sights all around, was smooth and clearly lit. It was the most desirable path one could take. But at the end of the road, it suddenly becomes horrific and treacherous and dark. This road ultimately leads to a painful death. As Solomon says in the Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end leads to death. You see, the book of Kings is a book that clarifies these two roads of freedom and also slavery. And the kings are able to choose one or the other. Will they choose the road of freedom? The road of covenant faithfulness to God the King, or the road of slavery and faithlessness. When the king chooses covenant faithfulness, they may face great hardships. There may be enemies that come against them, but the Lord himself is with them and carries them through with deliverance and freedom. But when the king chooses the road of slavery, though it seems like a well-charted path, though it seems easy and desirable, it leads to chaos And even death. In this text today, the path is put before Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Will they choose the way of life or the way of death? The way of freedom or the way of slavery? With Rehoboam, the path set before him is the path of servanthood or selfishness. In 1 Kings 12, Rehoboam is installed as king. He establishes his kingdom up north in Shechem, and he goes up to the northern kingdom. And when he goes up there, he goes to a people that are a bit disgruntled, burned out, exhausted. You see, Solomon recruited many from the north to hard labor in building the temple and also the palace. The task was great, and Solomon worked these people ruthlessly that they might finish the projects. Jeroboam was recruited to oversee the forced labor. Now, Jeroboam was considered an able, competent leader, industrious in every way. He's the type of project manager you would have on your team. Jeroboam flees to Egypt because of a dispute that he had with King Solomon. And when he finds that Rehoboam is now installed as king, he returns to King Rehoboam to make a request. In 1 Kings 12.3, you can look there right now, we read that Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came to Rehoboam and made this request. He says of Solomon, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us. and We will serve you. He said to them, that is Rehoboam, go away for three days, then come again to me. 
So the people went away. You see, leadership often requires some difficult decision-making. Trust me, all the pastors have experienced that in this whole season of the coronavirus. Some huge decisions have massive implications for many different people. Rehoboam understands the weight of this question that he's asked, so he pulls away to consider his response. In our fast-paced society where decisions need to be made right away, where action needs to be taken, we have very little room for pause. And so it's commendable that Rehoboam begins by waiting to respond. He wants to make the right decision. And so he pulls away and looks for advice. It's also commendable that he does seek advice, that he seeks the counsel of other people. Because so often in leadership, there can be this vision and this idea of leadership that a leader is one who is in the clouds. A leader is someone that goes up the high mountains, up to the clouds to see and hear from God himself. And this one leader knows it all, is able to communicate it clearly, and he comes down from the mountain and tells the people what to do. But, you know, this assumption of leadership assumes that the individual can see clearly and all that he needs is just God. But God has put leaders in covenant community. He has brought us in the presence of other people that help us see more clearly the problems and opportunities before us. And so leadership decisions are best made around a table with God's people and God himself. You see, if Rehoboam believed this, then he would have done what he just did. And that is bring others to the table. So who does he bring to the table? Rehoboam first brings the elderly in the community. Now, this is another good thing that he does here. When he invites the elderly to his table, he's inviting wisdom to his seat. He is calling these elders who have experienced longer periods of time than he has, who have been through the ups and downs of life, who know about interactions between people, who have learned a lot. These elders are the people of Psalm 71 that says the Lord has taught from their youth up until now. And these elders and the older believers in the community are called to declare to the younger generations the wondrous works of God and his ways. And so it's good that he approaches the elders because so often the youth want to stand on their own two feet. The youth want to pursue the latest and greatest rather than the old worn out advice of the curmudgeons and the old people over there. But Rehoboam asked the elderly first. This is commendable. The elderly advised him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, then you answer them. Then they will be your servants forever. In other words, these elderly men say that God has called you to lead in a way that serves. You are not meant to be served, but to serve. And this could have meant for Rehoboam that he gives less work. Possibly he gives greater clarity and direction as to what the people are to do. Maybe he is to train them about better competencies to be more skillful in their labor. But whatever this task is, he was clearly called to support the people in their work and most likely to lighten the load of their labor. All of this, what was required of Rehoboam, was to see the people that he served, to hear their hardships, to see their needs, and to do whatever they need to be supported and empowered to work. He is also advised to speak what is good. This could mean that he was supposed to give them what they asked, but it could also mean that he was meant to respect them in his words, speak to them in a way that respects their dignity, that honors them as people made in God's image. Do this not only in your manner, but also your message. If he decided to serve the people, they would in turn serve him with fruitful and faithful labor. 
You see, when people are valued and cared for, they often are more motivated to work hard, to contribute to the team, and therefore to accomplish better things together. But instead of following the advice of the elders, he went to his buddies. Rehoboam listened to the counsel of his friends, and the Proverbs tell us that a true friend actually gives earnest counsel. But Rehoboam's friends are not true friends in any way, for they only appeal to his lust for power. They only stroke his pride. The friends of Rehoboam simply tell him, don't serve the people under you. Look at verse 8. It says that he abandoned the counsel of the old men, and he gave in to the counsel of the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. He said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the loke that our father has put on us? They advised Rehoboam, say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. This is a euphemism saying the smallest part of my body is stronger and bigger than one of the bigger parts of Solomon's body. Instead of serving the people, he's basically saying, lay a heavier yoke on them, add to their yoke, make it more difficult. My father disciplined you with whips. You disciplined them with scorpions. This was a whip that had nails and all sorts of extra things to inflict more pain and harm. Instead of serving the people, his friends basically say, go show off your power. For challenging his leadership, these people must pay. He uses this euphemism and he basically says, give them harder work and more harmful discipline. Solomon whipped them with whips, but they're about to face a lot worse. This form of harsh uh, leadership, this self-serving leadership, is the kind of leadership Jesus warned against in Mark 10. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, they flaunt their leadership to show themselves great. They add extra rules and responsibilities and make it difficult. So that people will bow to them and their words. They assert their authority simply to show off their power. And people get hurt in the process. You see, what's interesting is Rehoboam acts like Pharaoh, doesn't he? When the Israelites were in Egypt, Pharaoh laid heavy burdens on them and oppressed them. And gave them relentless work to do. When they asked for relief to Pharaoh from this hard labor, he took away the straw to assist them in building the bricks. He demanded twice as much and gave them twice as greater hardship. The oppressed Israelite here then becomes the oppressor. The one who is challenged in labor now challenges other people and brings great hardship. As planned, Rehoboam invites Jeroboam and the others back to share this ruthless news. The load will get heavier with harsher consequences. Look at 1 Kings twelve fifteen. The king did not listen to the people. Why? Interesting. It was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that God might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Applying this to our lives, we must see the value of wise counsel. Perhaps the best thing we can do as we go into a new year is not make new resolutions or make a list of things we're going to do differently. But maybe the best thing for us to do is surround ourselves by wise advisors If you are younger, maybe a youth, maybe in your 20s to 40s, maybe what God is calling you to do this year is to surround yourself with someone 50 and up that has been through life, that can be a mentor and help guide you along in life decisions. Because so often we need other people to speak into our life. 
So I encourage you to seek out these relationships. If you're younger, invite someone older to a meal and ask about life. Tell them to share their story. Bring your questions before them. And for those that are older, one application we might take from this is that you have much to give to the younger generation. God has taught you over the years, even through your failures. And if you think to yourself, my life is one big failure, I want to encourage you that Paul said, I am the chief of sinners, and yet he invested his life in Timothy and many others, bringing the lessons of life to teach and train the next generation. This way, the older generation will pass on the baton to the next generation. We also must apply this principle of servant leadership in every area of life. Are you following the advice of the elders? Are you being a servant leader? Are you regularly checking in on those under your leadership to see how you can support them and help? Or are you simply making demands? Are you expressing frustration because they're not producing as you wish they would when you have lifted no finger to help? You see, this applies in our home as we disciple our children. Do you know the needs of your children? Do you engage them in meaningful conversation so you can understand their fears, their concerns, their competencies, their weaknesses, and their strengths? Are you mobilizing them to discern God's call in their life? You see, God has called us to do this not only in our families, but also in our work. He's calling us to take our leadership that he has entrusted to us and to steward that for his glory and the good of others. And this applies to work as you manage people under your leadership. As you serve your employees, serve them this week. Help them accomplish their goals and think about how you can help. And if you're a youth or a child, maybe you encourage your friends. Be the friend that people can rely upon to encourage and to help. You see, Rehoboam is divided in his leadership, but Jeroboam is divided in his worship. Jeroboam must decide how he's going to respond to the harshness of Rehoboam. Will he continue in submission to God's appointed king or rebel against the kingdom? Will he encourage faithfulness to God even as he endures the tyranny of a prideful, power-hungry king? Will he worship according to the word of God or according to his own heart? Look at verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. And Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And so they say, there's no portion for us here. There's no inheritance for us here. Therefore, we give no commitment to this kingdom. When he calls them to their tents, he calls them to rebel against the kingdom of Judah. Jeroboam chooses rebellion against God's appointed king and establishes the northern tribes of Israel. Interestingly, if you look at verse 15, it reveals that this rending of the kingdom was not just the rebellion of man, but it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that God might fulfill his word. 1 Kings 11:31, the prophet Ahijah tears his shirt into 12 pieces. He gives 10 of those pieces to Jeroboam and one to David. These tribes are taken from David's line because they worshiped and they forsook God. They worshiped the Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. They have not walked in God's ways, doing what is right in God's sight. They did not keep God's statutes or his rules as David, his father, did. So the rending of this kingdom in the southern uh, portion came not just because of 
man's rebellion, but God's purposes. It was a rebellion in worship because Solomon worshiped false gods and followed the ways of the world rather than the ways of God. God divided his kingdom and brought about a whole new kingdom up north. So how will Jeroboam respond? Will he be undivided in his devotion to God the king? Will he be undivided in his worship of the true God? Or will he follow the divided worship of Solomon and Rehoboam? Ahijah encourages Jeroboam in 1 Kings 11. If you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commandments, then I will build up your kingdom. I will make a name of you. I will develop this kingdom like the kingdom of David. But the heart of Jeroboam was just as inverted as Solomon and Rehoboam. For he set his heart on his goals and not on his God. He went straight to building his kingdom his way. He establishes a capital city in Shechem and a defense city in Penuel. But he also is afraid, instead of trusting the Lord in his heart for the flourishing of the kingdom and following God's kingdom way, he let his fear fill his heart and built a whole system of worship based on this fear. You see, fear, when mixed with misplaced love, can be a recipe for idolatry, worship, and ruin. He says in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go to offer sacrifices down south in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to the Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. You see, he fears that if they worship down south, They will stay down south. They will return to the kingdom of Judah, and this kingdom of his will come to ruins. Everything he sacrificed, all he built up, will be torn down in one worship cycle. His fear of return actually reveals his love of loyalty. He clearly is a king who idolizes his own kingdom and his own work. He cares more about his position as king than God's position as God. He dethrones God in his heart because he wants ultimate loyalty to him and not the true God. He not only builds a kingdom, but a whole worship enterprise centered on his kingdom so that people will not bow to Rehoboam or the Lord. He makes two calves. He puts these calves in two temples, one in Dan, one also uh, in Bethel. And these places of worship are to the God who delivered them out of the land of Egypt. But the problem is these gods are calves, not the true God. He made temples on high places throughout the north for spontaneous worship. He appoints priests that aren't Levites among all the peoples, lowering the standard for worship leadership. He even changed the worship calendar and created a new feast to celebrate the new arrival of this new kingdom as they journey to the new land before new gods. As Riken notes, Jeroboam was using religion and worship as a means to an end and not an end in itself. It was a useful tool for him to gain political gain and, and economic control. It was a power play, a money grab. And by using religion in the service of the state, he was keeping people and their Torah shekels out of Jerusalem. And we too worship our work and our state. Here we see how idolatry works in the heart of a person. He has some ultimate goal he wants to pursue. He is afraid that someone might hinder his goal from being realized or accomplished. This love and fear motivates him to devote to do whatever he must do to accomplish his desire. 
the goal becomes the God. The heart is given over to false loves and is ultimately left a slave chasing the goal no matter what, no matter the cost or the loss. When we consider the divided worship of Jeroboam, we first actually need to have compassion for him and for all those who have left the faith. Because you realize that he did not begin deconstructing his religion and building a new one because he was trying to get in the religious business. This all started with the abuse of Solomon and Rehoboam. These kings failed to represent their God. And sadly, we see many hurt in the church area of Lynchburg by abuse from pastors who claim to be godly, but have demonstrated ungodliness in their leadership. They have led their congregation from a bully pulpit. They have led with harsh words and meanness rather than compassion and gospel proclamation. And no wonder they left the church because the leaders did not show Jesus to the people. In the past 10 years, we have seen many pastors act as wolves in sheep clothing as they don't practice what they preach. Their immorality has caused many sheep to scatter and leave. And as we lament the failures of these hypocritical leaders with the D-Church in America, we also need to call the D-Church back to Jesus. For God the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the true and righteous leader. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our affections and our love. And He has come to save not only the sinful pastor, but also the sinful parishioner. You see, the D-Church in this city, in this state, they need to hear the gospel again. From fresh voice, a voice of someone who's going to not only speak the truth of the gospel, but live this truth before the people. The D-Church must return to the true church, to Jesus Christ, who founded this church on grace, the grace that forgives the sinner. Finally, we must stir our heart with a true worship of the true king. For we are all either like Solomon and Rehoboam who bring our idolatry into the church or we are like Jeroboam who leaves the church only to worship false gods outside the church. Like Jeroboam, many of the D-Church give ultimate allegiance to our goals and worshiping their plans and prerogatives. We are all helplessly divided, aren't we? We are all helplessly divided and need the one true king who is the undivided king of kings and lord of lords. We need King Jesus to forgive us for our dividedness and unite our hearts to fear his name. This is why even though God disciplines Rehoboam for the idolatry of Judah, he has not brought an end to the southern kingdom. He will afflict the offspring of David because of their sin, but not forever. Because as Ahijah has also said in his prophecy, he has given one tribe to the kingdom of David, his servant, so that he will always have a lamp before God in Jerusalem. And this lamp, though at times flickering, barely held tight and barely shining through the darkness, will one day give birth to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And this one king, the Lord Jesus Christ, will devote to God's purposes with an undivided devotion. Jesus' light will shine in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. No sin or temptation ever coaxed Jesus away from God. He was pulled and pried in every direction, drawn by sinful lust of all the people around him. But he always stayed faithful to his king. And even more than that, this king Jesus... The light of the world. 
He dispelled all the darkness in the world by dying in our place. He was devoted even to the point of death for our salvation. And on that dark day of Good Friday, when Jesus bore our wrath on the cross for our sin, all the sins of all God's, un, uh, all God's divided hearts was buried in that grave, in that dark tomb, left to die. For the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born. His name is Jesus. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And so put your trust in the undivided King, Jesus, and let him do the work in your heart to straighten that which is crooked, to forgive that which is ruined, to bring wholeness and healing and undivided devotion to God the King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, the undivided King, we are grateful that for 33 years you lived perfect obedience before God the Father. You were not swayed. You earned for us a righteous record before God. You died for our sin. Help us, Lord Jesus, to trust you and to follow you with a pure worship of the one true God, undivided affections to our God and our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.